If you have your Bibles, which hopefully you do, or maybe your phones or whatever, if you've got those things, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Now, many of you, your first response will be, what? (laughs) Revelation? Why are we going to Revelation at Christmas? Well, I'm going to explain that to you a bit as we get into it. But Revelation chapter 22 is where we're going to be beginning. We're going to be reading verses 16 through 17 together. And then today is going to be a Bible marathon, so get ready. We're going to be in Revelation. We're going to be in Corinthians. We're going to be in Isaiah. We're going to be, we're going to be in a lot of places. So get ready, okay? I got a lot of the verses up here on the, on the overhead for us, so you don't necessarily feel the need to flip all over the place. But if you wanted to go anywhere and put your thumb anywhere else in your Bible, if you've got a paper Bible, go ahead and do that with Isaiah chapter 11. Okay? But Revelation 22 is where we're kicking things off. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 through 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we get to hear and receive your word. And I pray that we would do just that, that we would submit to your truth, that we would joyfully look to you as the center of all things and the holder of all truth, and that we would repent and believe in the times in which we've fallen short. Father, you are good and your mercies endure forever. And I pray that today that you would give us the mercy of truth and understanding. That you would draw us to you by your grace and gift of repentance and faith. And that we would receive those gifts this Christmas with joy. Lord, help us today to hear and be taught by you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, preacher, so why the book of Revelation for Christmas? I'll tell you why. The book of Revelation is about two things, largely, okay? Now, this, this is a stumbling block for a lot of people. And I, I remember probably, I don't remember, maybe like uh, 10 years ago or so, eight years or so ago, having this disposition to the book of Revelation of, I don't want to mess with that yet because it's scary. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a lot of big words in there and a lot of intimidation factor in there. And there's a, a whole genre of literature that I don't quite understand yet. And as I have dug in more and more and more over the past several years, I got to tell you, it's actually not that complicated when you frame it correctly. And that's what I hope to start off today by doing. The book of Revelation is really a, about two things. The first thing is the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, there's about other things too. There's other stuff in here, but here's the two big ones. The first one is the, the destruction of Jerusalem that happened about 40 years after Jesus's crucifixion. Okay, that's, that's about the first thing. And you see that throughout the book of Revelation. Like if you look uh, around Revelation chapter 16, where you see the, the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out, and they're poured out very quickly. We're talking about the bowls of God's wrath of judgment being poured out upon Jerusalem. And that started whenever Jesus was crucified and the Jewish people who were present at his crucifixion lifted their voice to Pontius Pilate and said, let his blood be on who? On us and on our children. From that moment on, everything shifted. Okay? And that's, that's the moment where God's blessings were completely removed from the people of Israel 
And the church, as in those who believe in Jesus, became the, the new Israel, all right? So by and large, Revelation is about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened about 40 years after Jesus was crucified. And you can see all of that well if you read it with that lens over you. And it's also about the beginning of the age of the church. It's, it's, it's not about we're all waiting for the rapture. It's rather about we are all building Christ's kingdom together and moving forward. It's the beginning of the forward progress of the kingdom of Christ and that kingdom coming to full blossom. That's really the, the context of the book of Revelation. What we're really saying then, now it makes sense, doesn't it? What we're really saying then is, is, is the book of Revelation is about Christmas, right? It's about what Jesus is doing and will do through his church, through the culmination of all time. In fact, I would wager, I don't know that there is more of a Christmas book than the book of Revelation, because it's about where we are now. We are living in the time in which Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over all of creation, and you are his hands and feet through which his kingdom, his gospel will be advanced throughout the world. And you continue to push back the darkness. You see? Revelation is a Christmas book. Well, pastor, that sounds a little crazy. Okay, I got it. Maybe you don't believe me yet. I want to make a case. And I also want to teach you a lot between now and when I'm done. So hold on. For some of you, this will be a, a very fast, moderate review. For some of you, you will be hearing a lot of things for the very first time. Amen. Isn't it wonderful when the Lord does that and he teaches and instructs his people? But I want to take us through the scriptures and learn really what the point of all of the scriptures really are, which is why this sermon is titled Joy to the World. Jesus was promised as what? The coming Messiah, right? The, the Christ. Messiah is the Jewish term. Um, the, the Christ is the Christ is the Greek term, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, it's, it means the same thing. This is the one who's coming to, to save the world, the promised dragon slayer. And what was exactly the promise of the Messiah? Well, you can flip back, and I won't make you do this right now, because I'll just do a fast review for you. You can, you can think back in your mind all the way to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And if you're coming to our Bible studies that's on Wednesday nights, then you're, you're learning as we walk very slowly and intentionally through the book of Genesis. The promise of the dragon slayer that we see in Genesis chapter 3 after mankind rejects God and rejects his, his commandments. God promises that he is going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's going to be conflict there. And the, the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will do what? Will crush the head of the serpent. See, that's a promise. That's, and that, that word serpent there. We don't replace that with the word snake, okay? That's not, that's, not the appropriate, that's not the appropriate move or translation. But I know that's like what we all think. And for some reason, we think snakes were centipedes for a little while, and then they lost their arms. And no, 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 that's not it. That word is better understood as a dragon. And what dragon are we talking about, obviously? We're talking about Satan. We're talking about his work to destroy, to steal, kill, and destroy from the Lord and to make himself the center of the universe. But God promises in Genesis chapter 3 that the dragon slayer will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. And then God repeats that promise again and again and again and again throughout the scriptures, but in slightly different ways. 
A couple of easy places for us to go is whenever Noah is getting off of the boat. And God restates the promise to him. He restates his mission. He says, go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God says that to Noah as Noah's getting off the boat. That's a restatement of the original command that was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So we got that statement again. Hey, do this job. You can do it. And all the way through, if you've been reading our Advent devotionals with us, you see the tension that Israel is sitting in again and again and again while they're waiting for the Messiah, right? The the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpents of the head. And and then what happens to Eve? Eve bears a son. Who was the first son born? Do y'all remember? Is Cain, man, I heard a little kid say that, and that just made my whole day raising those kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I love it. Yes. Adam and Eve's first son was Cain. And, and praise God, because with his help, this is what Eve said, praise God, because with his help, I have brought forth a man. What is she really saying? She's saying, this must be the promised dragon slayer. And then what does Cain do? He kills his brother. Okay, so not that one. <laughs> He's not it. And then we see it fast forward again to Seth. Maybe this is the one. No, still not the one. Then we see it fast forward again and again and again and disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And then eventually it's Noah. And Noah is a righteous man before the Lord. This must be the one. This must be the one through whom the dragon will be killed and all of creation will be saved. But then Noah builds a boat, saves his family. They land. They get off the boat. And everyone says, sweet, no more sin because we killed all the bad guys, right? And then what happens? Sin. Sin. Amen. Sin. Noah gets hammered. His children are ashamed of him. Sin still lives in the world. Why? The lesson that's important that's taught to us is what? That we carry sin with us. It's not out there. It's in here. And God restates the command to Noah. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The dragon slayer is still coming. And then fast forward a little while, and who do we see after Noah? A lot of people. But the biggest, probably the most important one would be who? Abraham. Remember? We see Abraham pop onto the scene. Now, here's the important part for you to remember. Is that Abraham, realistically is probably about 2,000 years after God first made his promise to stop the dragon slayer. So think about that for just a moment, how long it's been for God to send the dragon slayer. Excuse me. It's been a long time. And God calls Abraham out of Ur. He's probably a moon worshiper or something. God calls him out to become someone who would follow him. And we see Abraham's story continue. And eventually God gives to Abraham the promise, what? I will make you into a great nation. You remember that? That sounds a lot like the fulfillment of the promise of the command to be fruitful and multiply, doesn't it? (gasps) And so what's the tension of those who are reading the book of Genesis? (gasps) Is this the one? Is this the dragon slayer? Is this the one who will defeat sin and death and save the world? No. Because Abraham doesn't believe God's promise. And he's weak and feeble and frail. Eventually his faith ramps and that culminates with his uh, later events in life. And you can see that if you read the narrative closely. But Abraham then gives birth to his son. Who's his son? We have Isaac and then Jacob. 
Now, I'm going to skip over Isaac, not because I don't think it's important, but because I don't want to be here for an hour and a half, okay? We skip over to Jacob. And Jacob is born with a twin brother. Do you remember who his brother's name was? Esau. And Esau is the one who actually holds the birthright because he's the older, okay? He was born first. But they existed with this struggle between them all of their life. And eventually, Jacob cons Esau out of his birthright with what? Do you remember? A bowl of soup. <laughs> Dude must have been hungry, like straight up. Well, this is the promised sons have come and they, they're still not doing it right. They're still lost. Esau is born, or Esau is, is conned out of his birthright, and Jacob flees for his life because he, know, he knows Esau is going to kill him. Jacob goes off and he, he finds wives, too many of them, and that also drives home to us the point that what? Sin still exists in the world. And he's refusing to follow God's order of one man and one woman. This problem repeats itself throughout the scriptures. And every time you see polygamy, that is one man with multiple wives, you see problems. Every time. But people are like, but the Old Testament doesn't condemn it directly. Really? Because there's drama every time. I think it's condemning it. It is condemning it. Let's move on. So we see here, Esau is, is now chasing Jacob. Jacob's running for his life. He runs off. He finds his wives, all those different things. And then Jacob runs into a little bit of a skirmish with his father-in-law. Now he's running from his father-in-law. And the only place that Jacob can go is where? back home where his brother is. And he knows his brother wants to kill him. And so Jacob, the night before he finally meets his brother and sees him face to face, Jacob does something profound. Do you remember what it was? He wrestled with who? He wrestled with God. But this is a big moment in this story. Because it's hard for us to understand apart from the greater lens of all of Scripture. If you just read that story by itself, you're like, Jacob's fighting with God? What does that even mean? <laughs> Why is he fighting with God? Because Jacob thinks he's going to die. Do you understand? And Jacob is crying out to God and not, remember, he's wrestling with God and the, the manifestation of God that he is wrestling with says to him, he says, do you remember? He says, let me go. It's morning. Let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let go. I will not let go until you bless me. Remember? I will not let go. I will not let you go. What is he really saying? He's really saying, I need you to remind me about your promise that you made because I'm going to my brother and I'm pretty sure he's going to kill me. I need you to remember, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God blesses him with what? Basically a restatement of his original promise to Abraham again. I'm going to make you a fruitful nation. It's going to happen. And he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And then he does what? Gives him a little tap on the thigh and dislocates his leg. So not only does God change his name, not only does God restate his promise, but God gives the Jacob who lacks faith a sign of his promise to carry for the rest of his life. You see? You see? Fast forward again and again and again, and we see this perpetual search for the dragon slayer. Is Jacob the dragon slayer? Well, he raised 
a household full of boys with a, a lot of problems. Okay, clearly sin is still present. Is Joseph the dragon slayer? He's raised up to rule and reign over all of Egypt. Is he the one that's going to save us? No, he's led his family into slavery and subjugation for generations to come. And the, no, I'm sorry, Moses comes on the scene. Is this the dragon slayer? No, he's not because he just killed this Egyptian in the middle of the, and he even sinned against God and he struck the rock instead of speaking to it and is not allowed in the kingdom. Where's the dragon slayer? We see it again and again and again. And massive gaps between this promise. And each time God reminding his people, I will not forget you. I have made my promise again. Now fast forward a thousand years and go to Isaiah chapter 9. Okay? You see that theme again and again and again and again and again and again in the scriptures. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6. The promise is stated again but just in a slightly different way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's been about a thousand years since Saul and David and Solomon were on the throne and the kingdom of Israel has had its ups and downs and drama and problems and all kinds of issues. And God shows up again to say, I haven't forgot you. My promise is still coming. You see, this is the promise of Christmas. You see that, right? Now skip to Isaiah chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, very beginning of the chapter. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is the lineage of Jesse, the lineage of, da the lineage of David. So the, okay, do you get the picture here? What's a stump? A stump is a, that's a dead tree, right? And remember the history of the split of, kingdom, of the kingdom after, after Solomon rules. and Solomon ascends to the throne after David, tanks the kingdom, okay? His sons do. His sons just split the thing in half. Everything's falling apart. And the history of the world perpetually moves down from the fall of creation all the way through up until the book of Malachi. Over and over and over again, it's a perpetual downward slope. So the stump, boom, Jesse, okay, cut off means destruction, death, chaos. But from that dead stump, a shoot will appear. That's verse 1 in Isaiah chapter 11. You see that? And a branch from its roots, shall bear fruit again. I haven't forgotten you. The promise is still here. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's adding more flesh to the bones of the original promise made to Adam and Eve and restated to Abraham and restated to Jacob and Isaac and all the way down the line. He's putting more flesh on the bones, you see. He's saying, hey, the Messiah's coming, and here's what he's going to look like. But then, read the rest of Isaiah 11. Because we recognize those passages as obviously fulfilled in who? In Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who rules and reigns. Jesus is the one who the government of the world rests upon his shoulder. Jesus is that. Jesus is all of those things. That's what Christmas is. We are celebrating the fact that Jesus came. But there's more to it. Go to verse 7. 
This one's weird. You ready? The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Now, pause a second. Lions and bears eating grass. Now, bears are omnivores already, so they do actually eat a little grass on occasion. That's the thing that they do when they're real hungry and the fish aren't swimming. That's true. But lions... What's the implication here? That we're going back to a state before the fall, right? Because before the fall of man, we didn't eat meat. Why? Because there was no death. Which means there was no animals that sustained themselves by killing other animals pre-fall. So this statement right here is Isaiah saying, hey guys, we're going back to a time like the beginning. We're headed that direction. The Messiah is coming to take us back here. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay. Now here's the hang-up, right? Obviously, some of these promises have already happened. The Messiah has come. Jesus has been born. He's been ruling and reigning. We see that already. But some of these promises have not happened. <laughs> they have not. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. The, the cow and the bear and the lion, they, they, they graze together. The, the children play over the cobra and the adder's den. No pain, no suffering, no death. What's that sound like? It's the culmination of all things. It's, it's the end of the world. That's what Isaiah is, is, is predicting here. Isaiah's prophecy is that the Messiah will come and will carry us forward into this time. So Jesus came and he did a lot of what he was supposed to do, but that was the beginning. The spark, the spark of what? The new heavens and the new earth. All right, I'm going to teach you all a new word here. You ready? Chiastic. Everybody say that with me. Chiastic. Okay. Now, a chiasm is an ancient form of literature, okay, that, that was used by the Jewish people. Now, it's difficult for us to understand because we, we, in our contemporary setting, are only used to reading a story with one narrative arc. Bad things happen, things get worse, good guy questions himself, gets better at things, good things happen, good guys win. Like, that's our narrative arc. That is the narrative arc of every Marvel movie you have ever watched in your entire life. That is just how they, that's how they go. They got one story to tell, okay? A chiastic structure, a chiasm, is an ancient form of literature that we're not familiar with anymore, but it's very important for us to understand because a lot of the books in the Bible are written in that structure. Here's the point. A chiasm puts the main point of the story in the middle of the story. Did y'all hear me? A chiasm, a story with chiastic structure, Puts the main point of the story, some of y'all are already going ahead of me here, just hold on, I'm like, just hold on. Puts the main point of the story in the middle of the story. It's very commonly used in the Hebrew culture. It's Jeremiah is an example of it. Uh, the book of Daniel, the sections of the book of Daniel operate in this structure. Some Psalms even work, the inside out. Like you can, you can see that structure happening again and again. It's an important concept for us to get. Why? Because... That's the story structure of all of creation, is a chiasm. Human history is a chiastic 
structure. In other words, are you listening? The main point is where? In the middle. In the beginning, there is creation. And all is well, right? There's no sin, no death. God puts Adam and Eve in a garden. And he says, go take dominion, subdue the earth, fill it, obey me. And they try, I think literally for a day. I think it's a day, okay, before the fall hits. They didn't even make it through one day. God sets them up for success and gives them a mission, but sin enters the world. Mankind sin and rejects God, and God casts them out of the Garden of Eden for their sin. Childbearing now comes with pain. That's filling the earth, right? The mission is now more difficult to fulfill. Childbearing now comes with pain. That's part of the curse. And also, the, the work that God has given us to do is now toilsome, okay? So whereas before it wouldn't be toilsome and we're filling the earth, childbearing, subduing the earth wouldn't be toilsome, filling the earth, childbearing wouldn't be painful. Now it is. You see how that works? But the mission is still intact, and God makes that promise we talked about, that he will come, and he will fulfill it, and he will kill the dragon. But if you watch the history of the world, what happens? It's perpetually down <laughs> over and over and over again. From there, Cain is born, Abel is born, they kill each other. There's a little bit of a, maybe Seth is going to do okay. Seth tries to do a little better, and then there's some more problems in the world. Things get even worse. Then they try to build the Tower of Babel, and God's like, well, this ain't going to work, and he sends all the people out. And then it continues, this downward trajectory again and again until eventually we get to the book of Judges. My goodness, you read the book of Judges? The book of Judges is just like a corkscrew down the whole time. It just gets progressively worse and worse and worse the whole book culminating in Yephthah, who some argue he didn't actually kill his own daughter. He just, you know, made her make a certain kind of vow. Maybe, but the point is still, it's a downward spiral the whole way. It's all the way down. And then we, we see after, after judges, who comes on the scene? The kings? Yay, Saul's going to save the day. Saul's terrible. <laughs> David's going to save the day. David's terrible. Solomon? Nope. Solomon's, nope. It just gets worse. And then the kingdom splits and the kings, it's like you get a righteous king every five or 10 kings or so. And they keep getting worse and worse. You see how that works? It's a downward moral trajectory from the Garden of Eden all the way up to the end of Malachi. All the way there. But what's the promise in Malachi? Let's just go there. If you don't know where Malachi is, go about 75% of the way through your Bible and then click. It's the last book of the Old Testament before Matthew, okay? You'll have the words up here if you don't want to do it. That's fine too. But let's just read all of chapter 4 together. It's only six verses. It's only six verses. For behold, this is Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be as stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Did you see everything that just happened right there? He promised the coming of Elijah the prophet. He promised the coming of the son of righteousness. And he promised that he would strike the earth with a decree of destruction for those who did not believe. He promised Jesus and the book of Revelation and the destruction of Jerusalem right there. And then after Malachi, do you guys remember what happens? 400 years of silence. Now can you... I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I I feel as though we get impatient when McDonald's takes longer than 12 minutes to bring us a hamburger, right? And here are the people of God waiting for this promise for 4,000 years. You can sense the the anxiety. You can, you can sense the, the tension. You see, this is what Advent actually is. Advent is us trying to put ourselves into the shoes of Israel for just 24 days, waiting, anticipating the coming of Jesus. And the entire trajectory of the Old Testament is what? Down. Things get worse and worse and worse, and worse. Sure, there are bright spots, but overall, it's, it's not great. And then, after the 400 years of silence, after Malachi, before Matthew, in Matthew, what happens? The Messiah is born. And he's got about a 30-year ministry. Well, he's alive 30 years. He's got a three-year ministry, but you know, bear with me here. Okay? That's a, that's a flash, Right? Jesus' ministry, he lives about 33 years before he's crucified. That's a flash in the span of 4,000 years. That's nothing. He is the center of the story. Do you see? The center of the chiasm. The center of the structure of all of human history. Jesus is at the center of it. What does that mean? Does that mean we have exactly 4,000 years from his death? And resurrection until... No, I'm not saying that. Because Jeremiah didn't work that either way and neither did the other ones. But listen to me closely. The point of all of creation is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's drawing crowds in his life. People keep... Jesus, in fact, tells people, stop telling people about me. Stop it. Remember that? He's like, hey, 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 don't tell anybody that you saw me. Because everybody, everybody is waiting in eager expectation for the coming of the Messiah. And he knows it and they know it. And so he's like, hey guys, please stop telling people about me. I, I got work to do. This is, y'all are going to make it impossible. And they keep coming. They keep coming. They draw, he draws crowds because they are ready. Some of them are ready to fight. Like Peter. Remember Peter? The zealot? He's like, no, yo, I'm ready. Let's go. I got my sword. We're going to fight. Some, some, all of them are ready to seat him on the throne, which is why when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt, that they all shouted, Hosanna! Remember that? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Because they think, there he is. 
It's happening right now. And they're right. They are right. But the mechanism by which it happens breaks all their brains. How is he prepared to rise and sit at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning forever? He's crucified. You see, this is why that moment is the center of the world. It's the center of human history. Because the cross, listen to me, because the cross is both the worst thing that has ever happened and the best. The only one in all of creation to walk the earth with utter righteousness is murdered. And not just murdered, but brutally murdered in the worst way possible in his time. A mechanism of death only reserved for thieves and and slaves and political prisoners. That's it. He is crucified. The most painful way to die of his day. The worst thing that could possibly happen in the history of the universe happens to him at that moment. But also the best. Because through his righteous death, the dragon is defeated. Sin is defeated. And you may have life. Do you see? It's both the worst thing in all of human history and the absolute best. Do you see? And it's from that moment, from the death and resurrection of Jesus forward, that human history does what? Not this anymore. It does this. Thousands are added to the faith every day. The Roman roads that were built by pagan empires and slaves are now used as veins and arteries to course the life of the gospel into the world as fast as possible. And the gospel spreads like wildfire. The church continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And sure, man, bro, we got some stuff wrong along the way. The first ever Christian nation that appeared upon the world was Rome under the rule of Constantine. And Constantine did not do a great job. Okay? Granted. But I'm not saying everything only moves up into the right. Remember how when things were moving down from the Old Testament, from the time of Genesis all the way through Malachi, there was these little bright spots along the way. Do you remember that? As we head up, we should expect there to be little dips along the way too, don't you think? And we're living in them right now. Our country being just 300 years old was clearly founded as a Christian country. The historical documents all point to that. I don't care what revisionist history you're reading. It's absolutely true. And in 300 years, really, in 100 years, in about 170, 70, we've managed to screw it up real good. Right? But that doesn't mean it's all over. The trajectory still moves up and to the right. Jesus doesn't take the throne on earth. He dies and assumes the throne in heaven. And therein lies the fulfillment of the prophecies that we read in Isaiah chapter 6. Of the increase of his government and of justice, there will be no end. What justice? Biblical justice. You see? The world will all one day be Christian. The dragon slayer has been sent The dragon has been killed, and the trajectory of human history has come. By his love, 
he died and gave, for, gave his life for us. The church explodes. God pours out his judgment upon Israel and Jerusalem for its rejection of the Messiah. Again, that's Revelation 16. That's the seven bowls of wrath. You can go read that later if you want. And now we're to the point where we await the completion of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 11, we await for the day when the lion and the calf graze together. The bear and, and they all eat grass. I can't wait to see it. Children leap and play over the cobra and the adder's den. There's no more sin and there's no more death. And this exactly here is where Revelation comes into play. Specifically, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. This is what makes the book of Revelation a Christmas book. Flip to 22, 21 with me, please. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 9 through 14, and I just want to point out a couple of things to you. Revelation 21 verses 9 through 14. I hope y'all are finding this helpful. I get excited about this. Beginning in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the bride of Christ? Jesus' church. Who's he saying? He's saying, Come with me, I'm going to show you who? Jesus' church. Come with me, John the Revelator, that's who wrote this down, and I'm going to show you y'all. You heard? That's, that's what he said. He said, come with me and I'm going to show you the future. I'm going to show you you guys. And he carried me, this is verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The holy city Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the remaking. This is important because he's, he's not moving along a particular timeline. He's, he's jumped to a different portion. He's jumped. Well, I won't spoil it for you. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. That's interesting, isn't it? We're going back and we're referencing the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. Hmm. Verse 13. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. Verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Oh, you're watching? You're watching? You're watching? What's inscribed on the 12 foundations? And on them were the names of the 12 apostles. One church. Right? Skip now down to, uh, down to chapter 22, the beginning of chapter 22. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life. Now, water of life, why does that sound familiar? There's a lot of Old Testament prophecies about it, but specifically it's the, it's the river of the water of life. And where does life come from? If you go back to Genesis, if you've been coming to our Genesis Bible study, who brings life into the world? It's God. And he does it by what? Breathing the breath of life into creation. That's where life comes. That's where God comes from. This is why if you came to our Wednesday night Bible study, you know that eating the blood is a thing that we still should not do today because the blood carries forth life. And that idea of the, the breath of life, the spirit of life is interchangeable. And here we have the water of life. And where is the water of life flowing from? Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
Who did Jesus send into the earth after he arose and to sit at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning? Okay, now pay attention. Don't miss this. This is big deal stuff, okay? Big deal stuff. Jesus is sitting right now, where? At the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, right now, right now. And who did he sit? Why was it essential that he went away so that he could send someone? Who is the someone that he sent? The Holy Spirit, the river of life. Do you get it? We're getting a picture in this moment of what is happening in the world right now. This is not future. This is present. This is the new age of the church that you and I live in right now. Verse 2. I am having so much fun. Okay, verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So the nations have been broken, and the Spirit of God is feeding the tree of life. We're getting the same imagery all the way back from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? That same imagery is happening. The river of God, the Spirit of God is feeding this tree so that the nations may be healed nonstop. In other words, there's your mission. Hey, church. Hey, church. Bride of Christ, you're being fed by the Spirit of God that the nations may be healed, which means you bring forth God's commands and His gospel and His good news to all the world that they may believe and follow Him all of, his de- all of their days. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. In other words, God is rolling back the curse. You think these advancements in medicine that we've had is just an accident? You think these advancements in care and life expectancy for us as a human race is just an accident? This is God rolling back the curse. It's happening now. The church has exploded throughout the world. I know it looks bad in America right now. Give me a break. We're one country. You know what's happening in China and Africa and in the Middle East right now? Revival like crazy. Because God's keeping the same promise. It's always been kept. Don't you see? And we are fools to think, well, it looks bad in America right now. Give me a break. God always keeps his promises. He has always kept his promises. And he's still keeping them today. It's us who need to believe it. And if you got to wrestle with God like Jacob did, then get to wrestling. And he might knock your hip out of socket. Amen. He'll give you a sign to remember the rest of your days. Amen. But it's on us. Why do you think the Bible teaches us that the analogy of Jesus' hands and feet are who? It's you. The dragon slayers come. The dragon has been defeated. And Jesus commissions his bride to go out and heal the nations. That's you. But, but Pastor, I ain't got access to no nations. Oh, I got it. <laughs> but you have a neighborhood, but you have a family but you have colleagues that you work with and whom you hold influence over. You have friends. This is our mission. Christ has commissioned you now to go and do the work. Go, therefore, and disciple all nations, 
teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But don't worry, because I'm with you, and I will be till the end of the age. See, that awakens something inside of you, doesn't it? Oh, snap, I was made more for the couch. I, I, was, made, I was made for more than that. I, I, was, I was made to, to fulfill a mission. I was made to be sent by God. I was made to do this work. I was made to be Jesus' church. Let's finish that section of Revelation chapter 22, shall we? This is what you were made to do. No longer will there be anything accursed. This is verse 3. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. In other words, they, are image, they carry the name of God where they go as a banner. It's saying on their foreheads, but it's the same principle. Verse 5. And night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is us. This is the church age. And this is why Revelation is a Christmas book. Now we're moving. And we're continuing to move up and to the right. And every now and then something bad happens and you get discouraged. I got it. But this is the mission of Christmas, the continuing of the mission from the very beginning. May we heal the nations with the leaves from the tree of life. May we be the light to the world around us. May they see the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ and repent of their sin and follow him all of their days. And may we be faithful to our very last breath. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.